Hello. It's good to be here this evening. It's much warmer than outside, right? <clears throat> Uh, my name is Milena Kalinowska. I'm director of public programs here at the Hirschhorn Museum, and I'm delighted to see you all here. As you know, this is the last lecture that we are having for Gilmo Kvitka exhibition. The exhibition is closing this Sunday, and we will be very sad to see it go. Uh, this evening we will be uh, with the lecturer Andreas Hussen, who is Professor of German and Comparative Literature and a contributor to Gelmo Kvitka catalog. His essay is, uh, I love it, it's quite intellectual, and asks very big questions such as, Kvitka is a modernist after modernism, he's a painter after painting. So these are very good questions and we very much hope that you will be asking all kinds of questions after the lecture. Uh, I would like to thank a few people here. Uh, Jenny Leahy, right up there, who works very closely with me, and she prepares all of these events so seamlessly. It's uh, really wonderful. I also would like to bring to your attention our curator, Evelyn Hankins, who is right here, who was really responsible for working with Gilmo Kvitka on the exhibition and the beautiful installation is really her superb work. Uh, as uh, usual, uh, we have lots of different uh, lectures and events happening after this one and I'd like to just to bring a couple of those to your attention. Our next exhibition will be that of Blinky Palermo. It's a retrospective which will be opening here to the general public on February 24th and we will be offering a walkthrough with Lynn Cook who is a curator of that exhibition. And then we have a direction exhibition of Garcia Todere which will be open in April. In between there will be some wonderful Meet the Artist lectures for which we are known. One on March 6th with Hans Op de Beck whose work you can see here at the Hirschhorn. So let's turn to uh, Andreas uh, Hussen, who is Villard Professor of German and Comparative Literature at Columbian University, where he taught since 1986. He's a founding director of Columbia Institute for Comparative Literature and Society, and one of the founding editors of New German Critique, the leading journal of German studies in the United States. Hussein is particularly known for his work on the 18th to 20th century German literature, culture, international modernism, and postmodernism. He has written many books and essays, and he was just mentioning to me that he wrote a book of essay available in Spanish only. So that'll be something interesting for us to wait for when it gets translated into English. And I'd like to bring to you one uh, wonderful volume that he edited, and it was on globalization entitled Other Cities, Other Worlds, Urban Imaginaries in a Global Age, Globalizing Age. Now, before we will welcome Professor Andreas Hussen here, I'd like to ask you to do a favor. Please turn off your cell phone, and I'll do it the moment I'll sit down because I forgot about that as well. Um, so let's welcome Andreas here. Thank you. Thank you very much, Milena, for a nice introduction. And I would also like to thank the Hirschhorn for having invited me, and especially thank Jenny and uh, also Evelyn for having given us a wonderful tour through the Quitka show this afternoon. It was actually for me the first time that I could see it because I'd missed all the other venues of the show earlier on. It was quite exciting. Uh, so let me begin with a few introductory remarks that will serve to frame my lecture about Guillermo Quitka and that will address the question why I am calling him a modernist after postmodernity. It's a topic that interests me a great deal right now, and I'm having some working on some other artists in the same context, so Kvitka for me is a good example for this line of work. So ever since the waning of the debate, you can all hear me, I take it, even in the back? No? Is this better? 
Okay. Uh, Ever since the waning of the debates about postmodernism and with the rise of globalization as a master signifier of our time, the discourses of modernity and modernism have staged a remarkable comeback. Modernity and its complex and conflictual relationship to modernism is being reassessed in architecture as it is in literature, the visual arts, anthropology, and cultural sociology. We have come to speak matter of course about alternative modernities or modernity at large. In a certain way, this is not so surprising. I have always argued against a simplistic linear chronology of the modern and the postmodern. Rather than opposing postmodernism to modernism in a reductive chronological binary, I have argued already in the early 1980s that U.S. postmodernism was an attempt to rewrite or renegotiate key aspects of the European avant-garde of the earlier 20th century. Analogously, the massive influx of European cultural theory into the U.S. in the 1970s and 80s, in my, to my mind, had more to do with a genealogy of European modernism in relationship to modernity than with any radical new American departure called post. In retrospect, however, the whole debate about postmodernism, unruly, contested, riddled with contradictions, and vitally energizing as it once was, appears quite parochial today. Parochial in the geographic sense, in that it remained limited to intellectual and historical developments in the northern transatlantic alone. But even there, European intellectuals, from Habermas to Derrida and others, never embraced the notion of the postmodern as it was embraced, even if often reluctantly, in the US. Perhaps then postmodernism was nothing so much as a US attempt to claim cultural leadership for what some called, at that time, the American century. Its goal was a new cultural international at a time when such internationals with their emphatic claims to avant-gardism had already become obsolete. This, of course, was before Alan Bloom and the neoconservatives in the 1980s held postmodernism and the 1960s responsible for the closing of the American mind, as they called it, thus initiating the US culture wars that have not abated to this day. And yet, the terms postmodernism and postmodernity have largely disappeared from critical discourse today. But what do we make then of the return of modernity and of modernism in contemporary discussions of globalization? Is it just a euphemism for modernization in its narrowest ideological cast, as someone like critic Fred Jameson has claimed in his book A Singular Modernity? Is it a cipher for Western hegemony, indistinguishable from globalization? And what of the massive return of aesthetic modernism in academic discourse and in big museum shows? My talk tonight is not meant to answer such huge questions, but it says confidently, welcome back to an idea. Not only do we need to acknowledge the existence and vitality of modernism at large, modernism, in other words, in Shanghai and Japan in the 1920s, Latin American modernisms from the 1920s to today, modernism in the Caribbean, in Franco and Anglophone contexts, and so forth. Beyond that historical question, however, there is something like a modernism after postmodernity in contemporary artistic practice, and Guillermo Cuitca's work provides us with a telling case study. <clears throat> So Kuitka then, I would suggest, is a modernist after postmodernism, an artist who relies on painting as a mode of knowing the world through structured aesthetic form, a painter after painting, but equally distanced from the neo-expressionist subjective outbursts as from conceptualist image making, an Argentinian after Borges and after tango, but without playing a Latin American identity card, an international artist who decided to continue working in his hometown Buenos Aires rather than living exiled in the northern metropolis where his work has met with success. Contradictions upon contradictions, all of them constitutive of his Prothean artistic output. 
The multiple series of paintings, drawings, and objects he has produced over the past three decades and that have catapulted him into the first row of artists from Latin America are compelling in their quiet intensity of spatial forms, their vibrant coloration, and their deliberate and suggestive use of repetition and serial transformation. Despite many literary, musical, theatrical, philosophical, and visual influences on his work, and he absorbs the art produced elsewhere as voraciously as his fellow Ar Ar Argentinian Borges did, his output is unmistakably his own, held together by the conviction that painting is what he called a resistant medium, both a dead end and a place of new possibilities. He does recognize the precarious nature of painting as primary medium in an image-saturated commodified world, but rather than abandon it altogether, he works on its transformation. Painting to him, who shuns explicitly political art, is not a medium of resistance, the resistance that has been so often claimed for anti-painterly movements since the 1960s. It rather is a resistant, and that to him is a durable medium, that will survive the many declarations of its death, its durability paradoxically guaranteed by the fact that it no longer holds center stage in the visual arts. Such a conviction is perhaps easier to hold and defend on the periphery of the international art scene than in the market-driven frenzy of the metropolitan art centers. And it endows Kwitka's work, cool and formally rigorous as it appears, with a certain melancholy of aesthetic intelligence. In Argentina, too, the legacy of modernism weighs heavily. Kwitka's breakthrough as a painter usually identified with his 1982 series, Nadie Olvida Nada, Nobody Forgets Nothing, resulted from his encounter with the dance theater of Pina Bausch around 1980. Though he had painted from early childhood, the experience of Bausch's work in Buenos Aires and later in Wuppertal, Bausch's home stage, shocked him into believing that, and I quote, you can do everything in theater nothing in painting. <clears throat> if Bausch was a revelation, she also triggered his insight into the crisis of painting. Ironically, at the same time, that painting experienced a major comeback with the European neo-expressionists in the early 1980s, painters such as Clemente, Baselitz, Lüppertz, Kiefer. But nothing could be further from Kuitka than the explosive and often indulgent concern with painterly expression and self-expression of those years. His trajectory was to be different. Alienated at the time from Argentinian political art protesting the military dictatorship, he placed all his bets on theatrical space and even experimented for a short while with theatrical productions at the cultural center of La Recoleta in Buenos Aires. Soon enough, however, he gave up theater for painting. But in the end, it was the bounded space of the theater that made him into a paint, the painter we know. Fond of remembering Isidora Duncan saying, I could dance that chair, or Eisenstein's claiming that he could film Marx's capital, Kwitka is a painter who aims at exactly that mix of concreteness and abstraction, figuration and structure that Duncan and Eisenstein had in mind. I would suggest that this project has come as something similarly impossible at its core as dancing a chair or filming Das Kapital. In his attempt to transform painting, he became a painter of space. Now, as he makes space the subject of his painting, he does not do so mimetically by representing concrete visible sites, but rather by deploying formalized representations of space. Maps, modules, theater seating plans, apartment plans, urban maps, and in a slightly different mode, road maps on the surfaces of mattresses. <clears throat> Painting as cartography reveals the epistemological ambition of his work. It aims at understanding our world, at mapping an elusive reality. 
Historically, maps, of course, stand for power, conquest and control, as well as for orientation. But the purpose of Kwitka's cartographic experiments is anything but to add to the language of power so central to map making. His maps rather open up imaginary spaces. They put in place a kind of detournement of the received idea of the map. Rather than simply offering orientation, his maps tend to put the spectator into spatial and temporal limbo. They disorient. Maps, of course, had been central to the literary work of Borges' modernism, and there's great elective affinity between Kuitka and Borges. Maps and mapping had also emerged as a major theme in the postmodernism discourse of the 1980s, with its often overstated claim that postmodernism privileges space as opposed to modernism, which had privileged time, a reductive binary which Kuitka's work does more to challenge than to confirm. For centuries, painting has depended on landscapes, architecture, interiors, and all kinds of locales as subjects. Represented space was mimetic, bound to representing concrete places, or it had become fully abstract, as in Kandinsky, Malevich, or Mondrian, in whose work the flat canvas alone was a space of painterly exploration. But Kuitka, with good reason, refuses to be called an abstractionist. He said in an interview, diagrams are neither abstraction nor successful representation. And he's right. His painting sidesteps the discourse that pits figuration against abstraction, visual presence of illusion against its absence, a discourse that was so dominant in the Cold War. It results in a new kind of image that remains representational in a non-mimetic mode, cold and yet sensual, geometric but often delirious with color, conceptually rich but far from conceptualism in that it is still geared toward capturing modes of experiencing and knowing the world through painted images. To put it differently, Kuitka's work, centered on maps and diagrams, gives us a grammar of space rather than a lexicon of spaces or a vocabulary of sites. It thus moves beyond abstraction without embracing figuration and representation of a traditional kind. And it moves beyond representation without embracing either expressionist or purely geometric abstraction. <clears throat> the series Nadia Olvida Nada is the germ from which all of his later work evolved. It is a series of paintings in acrylic on wood, <clears throat> all relatively small, each featuring a crudely drawn empty bed with small, barely contoured human figures at some distance from the bed, and all were seen only from behind. Bed and figures appear to be floating in empty space, which is colored in intense reds, yellows, or browns. Only the shape and position of the bed suggest perspective. Otherwise, there is spatial limbo. The figures are predominantly female. In one image, a woman is being led away by two men in the painting center, with other figures dispersed in empty space, and part of a bed emerging from a white-gray blotch of paint near the left margin. In another, a row of women is lined up horizontally in the middle ground of the painting, all seen from behind as if to be executed. All works in the series exude a sense of alienation, placelessness, negativity, statism. Now, if the bed is seen as the place of birth, sexuality, and death, key to any notion of privacy and family, a psychoanalytic reading would seem to suggest itself. Nadia Olvida Nada might then be a diagram of a space and of a process of memory and repression central to the Freudian unconscious. While such a reading may be plausible, it is not sufficient. The year of this series, and what Kuitka called the absolute absorption with which it emerged, are clearly significant. In an interview, Kuitka said, and I quote, 1982 was a very intense year in Argentina with the dictatorship collapsing. 
The Falkland War brought collective action in culture, end quote. Collective action, his series of paintings, was not. But what if the intensity of the historical moment had something to do with what he called the absolute concentration and absolute commitment and the almost miraculous moment that saw the series of paintings come to light? <clears throat> I should go back to that one. Nadia Olvida Nada, Nobody Forgets Nothing. So who might be the nobody of the title? What is the nothing? What does the forgetting refer to? Clearly this series of paintings is marked by a resistance to forgetting. Not surprisingly, it has been read in relation to the state terror perpetrated by the military dictatorship over its populace from 1976 to 1983, a central theme in many of Argentina's major artistic productions since the 1980s. But the title's phrasing is a simple statement in the negative, rather than an emphatic demand, as in the Nunca Mas discourse of the National Commission of 1983 that investigated the crimes of the regime after its fall. In its linguistic and painterly understatement, this series doesn't lend itself to political campaigning or to the kind of moralizing discourse that was to become so dominant in the 1990s international culture of memorializing and witnessing. The scenes are private, abed individual figures. But of course we know how private space resonates in dictatorships, <clears throat> invaded as they often are by state violence. Dictatorship annuls the separation of the public and the private when people are pulled out of bed and arrested at night in their homes. Dora Salcedo's bedroom and furniture sculptures come to mind in this context, but whereas the violence is marked in Salcedo's wor working over of furniture items, inlaid bone fragments, pieces of furniture, violent shoved into each other, Kuitka's series gives no such clues. The nada, the nothing, captures the absence, the void into which the Argentinian desaparecidos have been thrust. Implied in the title, of course, is the idea, everybody remembers everything. But such a statement is impossible because the individual fate of the disappeared in captivity cannot be remembered as long as it remains undocumented beyond the mere fact of disappearance. Suddenly, there is added significance in that all figures in the series are drawn schematically and seen from behind. The absence of faces points to the voiding of individuality by state terror. And Nadie, nobody, is not everybody remembering anyway. These nobodies are figures barely visible in their contours, sometimes drawn in white, sometimes drawn with simple lines in black, and always schematic. But ultimately, the nobody of the title points to Kwitka himself, who is known for shunning self-expression. It is as if he hides behind this, world, this word, Nadie, just as Homer's Odysseus did when he faced the violence of Polyphemus, giving his name as Odeus, that is, nobody in Greek, in order to better escape from mythic fate. Analogously, Kwitka, the self-denial of Nadie as a means of aesthetic and political self-preservation. By linguistically and pictorially wiping out subjective experience and objective representation of state terror, the imaginary space of memory, and memory is always imagined and not real, is preserved all the better. More immediately, this denial of self and subjectivity stands in a long line of tradition, a modernist tradition, from Kafka to Beckett. Think of figures like K in Kafka's trial, the unnameable in Beckett. It is one of the major tropes of modernism, and Kwitka makes self-conscious use of it, thus subtly giving visual shape to a very specific historical moment in Argentina, the anticipated end of military dictatorship. <clears throat> when he was asked once about the emergence of the bed as a kind of leitmotif in 1982. Kwitka said, quote, the bed became a refuge, a territory. And then he went on to erase any overt political reading of the bed 
by putting it into the broad context of his later work and by reading it simply in terms of space. And I quote again, the bed now is a stage. On the surface of the bed, you can trace a line. The bed becomes an apartment. The bed is land. The bed is a city. Ultimately, the bed is theater. At first, the bed features in a big room, a large space with small objects. The bed becomes a way of setting the space. The denial of self-expression and overt subjectivity has both biographic resonance and a formal aesthetic dimension in Kvitka, I would want to argue. Much like Borges, Kvitka relates to the world and its representations free from the limitations imposed by the identity politics so prevalent in the art market, especially of the 1990s. Born in 1961 and having lived all his life in Buenos Aires, apart from that brief period in Germany with Pina Bausch, he produced his formative work at a time when the new Italian painting and the new German expressionism were the latest craze. However, his wariness about being labeled an Argentinian or Latin American artist is more than any artist's unhappiness about being typecast and becoming a ready-made in the market. When asked about his desire not to be catalogued and defined, he said, and I quote, in the end, this very ambitious project of not being from anywhere is a kind of condemnation of wandering." End quote. Given his Jewish family background, this can be read as a clear reference to Ahasuerus, the wandering Jew. His immigrant grandparents had come from Odessa in the Ukraine, and Odessa appears several times in veiled form as prop in his early stage paintings. In this one here, for instance, the famous scene with a baby carriage tumbling down the steps in Eisenstein's film Potemkin, an indirect reference to the kind of political violence that forced his ancestors into exile. And here another work that is also included in the show. Of course, his comment about the condemned wanderer pulls him right back into an identity. But it is the identity of a diaspora in which the security of place and the comfort of belonging are denied. At the same time, his evasion of identity has a more contemporary source in Argentina's political upheavals. I quote again, the diaspora seems to me a perfect figure for what I know. The Argentinian diaspora, in other words, the diaspora of the 1970s and 80s, was much more important than the Jewish diaspora for me. The times were horrible. I hated Argentina very much." End quote. And yet, he did stay and continued to work in Buenos Aires. Adorno once defined exile by saying, uh, by saying home is having escaped. Kvitka never went into exile, but the project of his painting is to escape the fixations and determinations of place. Thus he finds a kind of imaginary exile at home, while his works find a home in galleries and museums abroad. Clearly, Kvitka's privileging of a spatial and temporal limbo, so pronounced already in his first major series of paintings and multiply reenacted later on, is not just personal idiosyncrasy, but a conscious reaction to historical experience. The paradox is that the very dissolution of space and time so characteristic of his work is grounded in the Argentinian experiences of immigration, political exile, and disappearance. Identity, after all, is not so easily escaped. Spatial limbo and temporal disorientation are key features of Kafka's and Beckett's writings. This leads me from the biographic to the formal dimension of Kvitka's work. For what remains after the evasion of place is space, abstract space. And I quote, my way of knowing the world perhaps resides in that movement in which the world is erased, end quote. Erasure of the world, this too is practiced in Beckett and in Kafka. The theater progressively voided of figures, of plot, of theatricality as the world, of the world as in Beckett. 
the narrative voided of definable space of individualized heroes and stable plots as in Kafka. What do you see, asks Ham in Endgame, and Clough answers, nothing, all is gray. Now, Quitka's theater piece is central to his work in the early 80s and again in the 90s and beyond are never gray. They're explosively colorful, except for that very last one of the series, which is a stage in barely drawn outline, bluish-gray, monochromatic, endpoint of theatrical minimalism. But just as Beckett still writes plays that can be performed as great theater, rather than becoming somehow abstract, Quitka's painting, however abstract it may get, never loses its link to referentiality. The maps, the theaters, the record covers, there are no longer any human figures after the mid-1980s, but there is a figurative effect by way of a negation of the human figure. The major exception to this move away from a figurative theatricality can be found in the Yokomo series of the mid-1980s, the Me As or I As series, paintings of a vast dark stage featuring the kind of painted panels at fairs at which visitors can have their photo taken by putting their heads through a cutout hole to appear as some mythic hero or devilish figure. Kuitka paints himself that way in Yokomo Una Noche, Me as a Knight, or Yokomo El Angel, Me as the Angel. But how different from the self-representation, say, in Anselm Kiefer's series Occupations from 1969, where the artist staged himself in a variety of real European sites performing the Hitler salute for the camera. What is deliberately theatrical in Kiefer becomes anti-theatrical in Kuitka. While the bodily identity is confirmed in Kiefer's provocative gesture, it is precisely denied in Kuitka's painting. By sticking one's head through a painted panel at a fair, one does not assume another identity, but it is in the form of a denial one's own of one's own body and a refusal of acting for the purpose of creating a frozen image, the photo as souvenir. In another painting from the mid-1980s, which is also in the show and uh, from the series entitled Siete Ultimas Canciones, Quitka paints himself looking at his own reflection, but without a mirror, in the middle of a huge empty stage space smeared in dark blue grayish tones. In the foreground, there's a word, white letters in a bluish rectangle, reminiscent of neon light signage. The first letter is recognizable as K. The other five letters resemble hieroglyphs, but hiding and revealing the name Quitka. One senses some existential alienation of the artist in such paintings, but even these few self-portraits, if they are indeed self-portraits, deny existential self-expression, and they make the painter look anything but heroic, a major difference from the European neo-expressionists of the early 1980s. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, then Quitka abandoned the representation of theater space that was central to his series of the 1980s, focusing instead on the elaboration of the bed as setting the space. This move is embodied in several series of maps, roadmaps, and perhaps best known roadmaps painted onto mattresses. The kind of work that suggests the central privacy of the bed and combines it with the abstract representation of distant spaces on the maps. However, a mattress is a bed denuded, deprived of comforting sheets, pillows and covers, and the sense of privacy is further undermined by the fact that these mattresses are usually exhibited in series, anywhere from 3 to 54 or more in one show, either hung on the wall or laid out horizontally. Most maps of areas, most maps are of areas Quitka never traveled to, many of them in Europe, some of them in the Americas. Here too his transformative practice opens up imaginary spaces, 
For instance, when in a map of Poland and another of Mexico, every single bigger city bears the name of San Juan de la Cruz. So that an imagined traveler would always arrive where he departed from. A kind of nightmare we know from Kafka stories in which spatial disorientation results from exactly such confusions of proximity and distance. But apart from estranging the viewer from the familiar public-private space distinction by painting maps onto mattresses, public space onto private space as it were, the road maps themselves are worked over much less than the city maps. The main strategies of imaginary estrangement in the road maps are two. First, there's the use of brilliant luminous color marking the roads combined with the textured and darkly colored backgrounds that seem to threaten the map with erasure and disappearance. And secondly, major cities with their confluence of roads are often marked by the indentation of the mattress button, creating an effect of condensation and pressure. Quitka city maps, quite different from Gerhard Richter's map paintings, tend to add a strong allegorical dimension. Streets may appear, <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry, I mean, this was the San Juan de la Cruz map. I, you know, got a little confused here with the, with the images, where every city you can see it is named San Juan de la Cruz. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> back to the city maps now. Street, streets may appear in the form of syringes, an allusion to the urban drug culture and the AIDS crisis of the 1980s. A partial map of San Francisco marks streets as bones. And while most of these works are entitled Sin Titulo, untitled, the relation of death and maps becomes powerfully evident in a work divided into six horizontal, horizontal rows of three frames each, with the top and bottom rows cut in half by the frame each of which contains a piece of a map. Obviously, the idea reproduces the spatial organization of overview maps or key maps in a road or city guide, where each frame would normally be numbered, thus referring the reader to another detailed map inside the guidebook. The mixture of darkness and light in the individual frames resembles the structure of painted glass windows of medieval cathedrals except that the density of the lines marking the roads make it all look like shattered glass that simply has not yet tumbled out of its frames. This work from 1992, 50th anniversary of the Wannsee Conference at which the final solution was decided on, is called Kristallnacht, Night of Shattered Glass of November 9, 1939, a date that infamously marks the road to Auschwitz. This is not political art in the traditional sense, but a work that compellingly translates the memory of a historical moment into visual language. <clears throat> the pictorial questioning of the public-private dichotomy in the maps and mattresses is but one form of what may be at the core of Quitka's painterly project the painting of proximity and distance. Two other major series of the 90s, the floor plans and the theater seating diagrams carry this project further. It is significant that in both series, Quitka takes architectural space as his theme, but he's not interested in the building or construction aspects of architecture. Instead, he focuses on the graphic vocabulary that represents space before it is built apartment floor plans, or after, seating plans of theaters. Erasure of the world appears here as erasure of architecture itself. Common to both series is also the absence of human figures. The family occupying an apartment is only implied, just as the audience is in the theater seating diagrams. As in the later Neufert suite, a series of paintings working with the geometric modules of a well-known architectural handbook, all these paintings undercut the functionalism implied in the architectural subject matter by imaginative transformations of the material represented. Thorns and bones reoccur in the outlines of the floor plans in addition to words framing an apartment space in 
Gimme Shelter of 1992. Compared with the stage paintings of the early 1980s, the floor plans mark another step on Kwitka's road toward reduction in his representation of space. On the other hand, the radical shrinking of spatial representation to modules and diagrams makes possible entirely new forms of suggestive play with the material. As opposed to built architecture, which of necessity is referential, referentially concrete and stable, Kwitka's four floor plans exude a referential arbitrariness that opens up the modules to imaginative transformations of all kinds, none more so in, uh, than Coming Home of 1990, which is a work I love and which unfortunately is not in this exhibit. This work is a stunning example of how suddenly, out of a series of variations on floor plans, there emerges a work that bundles a sea of meanings and motifs, creating an imaginary space by the sheer force of an allegorical illumination. Coming home, a perspectively organized, elongated floor plan, receding in dark and lighter night blues from the bottom toward the top of the frame, appears as if it were an airport runway at night. With a few brush strokes in white marking the center of the runway, and with the outer perimeter of the floor plan airport marked by regularly spaced white dots suggesting lighting. Referentiality is doubly coded by the diagram of an apartment which simultaneously represents an airport runway. To me, this painting has a compelling power because of the superimposition of apartment and airport, private and public space, proximity, home, and distance arriving from afar. Color then takes on an even more explosive character in the theater seating plans of the Teatro Puro series. Bright reds, blues, greens, and yellows used monochromatically or in combination create a pure theater of colors. Kwitka has told the story of how he first happened upon such a seating plan at the box office of the Covent Garden in London. His imagination was caught by the fact that such diagrams used to allow ticket buyers to choose their seating reverse the usual perspective onto the stage. The perspective here is from the stage into the theater rather than vice versa. Such plans then do suggest how the audience is being seen from the stage, a reversal of the gaze which makes this entirely new form of painting theater possible. The theater not as a space of representation, as it appeared in Kwitka's early work, but as diagrammatically represented architectural space to be occupied by an audience, a public. Both actors and audience are, of course, absent in the diagrams, as they are in the dozens of theater and opera paintings Kwitka executed since the mid-1990s. Some of the diagrams he used are from well-known theaters, but many are simply taken from available guidebooks of theaters. Reinforcing a sense of anonymity, most of the series paintings are entitled, uh, <coughs> you know, untitled, sin titolo. The point is not to focus on the identity of the theater, but on the ways the diagram is colored, inscripted, modified by the hand of the painter. It is only in his later work from around 2002 on that he names the theaters of his paintings, most famously houses, most, mostly famous houses, which no doubt increased the marketability of these works. Here you have Teatro Colón in Buenos Aires, the old Vic, the Bayreuth Festspielhaus. The naming here goes hand in hand with increased forms of dissolution and fragmentation of the image. Especially stunning is a 2005 series of theater works, and again there are several of those in the show, densely layered in mixed media on paper that shows the Opéra de Paris with its house in deep reds lurching upwards as if on fire and collapsing in on itself. The New York Stage Theater balconies painted in black above the orchestra in red, disintegrating into so many small strips of black paper pasted onto the white background paper. The New York Stage Theater disintegrating into bluish gray fragments. 
and then two more uh, of the series uh, from Covent Garden with two more works on paper. The motif of disintegration, falling apart, disaster, is paramount in all ten works of the series, and Quitka's increasing obsession with Richard Wagner points in the same direction. It all suggests the end of the theatre rather than its glory, but what a spectacular ending it is. And then there is the hint of yet another philosophical argument emanating from his technique of dissolving, blurring, and erasing. In the architectural plans taken from Diderot's Encyclopédie, the same effect is achieved by applying water and steam to images taken through Photoshop and printed on sensitive photo paper. In this series, dissolution and erasure have a strong temporal dimension, I would want to suggest. The images are made to look as if they had suffered ruination by time. Diderot's work stands, of course, for the Enlightenment, Le Siècle des Lumières, and for the belief in modernity it nurtured. These works may then simply suggest that the Enlightenment is fading from view, or they may make the even stronger point that the Enlightenment today is in ruins, as seen in the ruination of both the dictionary's pages themselves and of the architectural images they represent. The work, of course, does not give unambiguous answers to such meta-historical queries, but it makes the spectator reflect on the crisis and ruination of an enlightened modernity in the contemporary world, characterized as it is by resurgent religious fundamentalisms across the globe. Remembering that architecture and ruins were always central to Wagner's imagination, the Encyclopédie series can easily be related to Quitka's work on the ring cycle. Well, this is another image from the Encyclopédie. Here, the work on the ring cycle. <clears throat> but then Quitka is too cool and calculating an intellect to go entirely for a hot Wagnerian vision of doom or apocalypse. After all, the theater and encyclopedia works more or less simultaneous with the cool, if not icy, reflections on architectural space of the Neufert Suite and the Nocturne. Here, as earlier, there always is this tension between effectively charged works and the subdued, flat, merely geometric and diagrammatic mode of working surfaces. I suspect that the challenge of representing spaces in disintegration and dissolution may interest Quitka almost more from a technical point of view than as meaning. It allows him to experiment with mixed media involving paper, Photoshop, paint, steam, and water to create the stunning effects of melting, dissolution, erasure, and disappearance. And there, were some very re there are some very recent small works in this show that actually show a further development of these techniques. And yet such themes are quite symptomatic of contemporary Western culture at large. They mark, I would suggest, the intense debates since the 1990s about the presence of the past, about memory and trauma, about the broken promises of modernity, and the crisis of a utopian imagination. Quitka's contemporaneity with a global condition, within a global condition, is palpable in this constellation. <clears throat> I spoke earlier of a certain melancholy pervading all of Quitka's work. Melancholy is usually associated with coldness rather than with heat, with intellect <clears throat> rather than emotion, with emptiness rather than plenitude with loss and death rather than present life. The melancholy effects of Quitka's spatial imagination are particularly pronounced in the Tablada Suite from the early 1990s and in the 2000 and 2001 series of paintings of airport luggage conveyor belts. And I will conclude with some comments on these two series. The Tablada Suite, which has its wonderfully its own room in this show at the Hirschhorn, <coughs> gets its name from an old Jewish cemetery on the outskirts of Buenos Aires. A map of the, of the cemetery is the first work uh, is the first work of 1991 in the suite, followed by the diagrams of other institutions. <coughs> 
occupied by people as patients, a pediatric hospital, prisoners, a prison, readers, a library, spectators, a stadium, and then rather whimsically, the fictional space, uh, fictional space travelers in a diagram of the Millennium Falcon from Star Wars. As in the case of the theater seating plans, <coughs> which Kwitka took from theater guidebooks or web pages, the diagrams of this series too are objet trouvé, which are then projected, worked over, and altered. Of course, it is tempting to approach this series with Foucaultian ideas about the disciplining function of institutional spaces, but such an approach, I think, would be too reductive. The notion of a controlling and disciplining gaze of surveillance a la Foucault may pertain to the prison and the hospital, but it doesn't work with the scopic regimes of spectator sports, exhibition culture, or the theater, not to speak of the cemetery. Central to Foucault's work is the effect of the institution on subjects and the internalization of power structures. This is not Kwitka's main concern. I tend to think that Kwitka focuses on such institutional spaces as the spaces of human interaction, expanding, as it were, the theme of the apartment floor plans as family space toward now institutional and public space. If these diagrams, all set in monochromatic pale backgrounds, do give a sense of closure, they do so in terms of sadness, desolation, and a consciousness of the inevitable ending of life, not in terms of the power of institutional space to subject and to discipline. The cemetery, here called La Tablada, is not just the beginning of the series, but also its end, its telos, place of another kind of erasure of the world. One could also then describe the Tablada suite as giving us still lives of institutions, nature morte, except that the nature in question is not first but second man-made nature. <coughs> Excuse me. Thoughts about mortality have been tied to melancholy and to the Baroque ever since Burton's massive 17th century study of this psychic and somatic condition. In the airport conveyor belt series from 2000 and 2001, Kwitka gives his, this theme a very contemporary twist. Among the many untitled works of the series, two stand out, Terminal on the left and Trauerspiel on the right. Both are painted in the manner of photorealism, reminiscent of the 1960s machine paintings by Konrad Klappeck, a German pop artist. Both are in oil and on canvas only, which separates them in terms of medium and material from the other untitled works in ink and watercolor or oil and pencil which make up this whole series. Given their emphatic title, Terminal and Trauerspiel, they clearly carry extra weight in the series. Now if the word terminal marks both an airport unit and the human condition, Trauerspiel is a clear reference to Walter Benjamin's famous study of the German tragic drama of the Baroque, a work which, historical and philological though it was, bristled with hidden references to the modernism of Benjamin's own time. Analogously, Kwitka deploys the Benjaminian notion of the Baroque Trauerspiel to name one of the most symptomatic technical devices in the age of global mobility the luggage conveyor belt at airports. If the Baroque Trauerspiel or tragedy was about the world as a stage, thus nurturing and enabling the theater, then the end of the theater, suggested by Kwitka's theater series already, has made that trope either real or obsolete. At any rate, the distinction between world space and theater space, the real and the illusion, seems to have caved in. In Trauerspiel, the non-place of the airport baggage claim appears as the last theater. The openings in the back wall through which the luggage would enter are covered by red theater curtains, making the luggage into actors entering from the left onto the proscenium and exiting on the right. But in these images, there is no audience, no travelers, no luggage. And behind the red curtains, there is certainly no stage. 
The principle of reduction is at work here yet once again. Real theatre depends on place, the house as represented in the Pure Theatre series or in the more recent works on paper from 2005. In both Trauerspiel and Terminal, however, place has been displaced to the non-place of the airport. These two paintings can be read as Quitka's Requiem on the theatre. <clears throat> so if there is a development in Quitka's production, one might locate it in the progressive move toward an overall sense of dissolution, voiding, erasure of the world, something his work actually shares with the writings of Sebald. Referentiality has become deeply problematic for him, even more so than for the classical modernists, who after all did posit new forms of referentiality against the realism of an earlier age. Whether or not they tended toward apocalypse, they did believe in the future reconfiguration of the world. No such comfort in Quitka, the modernist after modernism. The melancholy inherent in all representation rules supreme. Quitka's contemporaneity, some very final comments now, can be captured in the fact that his work lacks a utopian projection of the future. Future of art or future of the world. His work marks limits and endings rather than displaying some new avant-garde ethos. <clears throat> I quote him for a last time. My work does not follow the traditional idea of experimentation. The idea of my work is to work on the limits of a specific field in a kind of cul-de-sac. Statements such as these make it clear that Quitka works out of the ruins of modernism to which he still adheres by not simply abandoning painting for installation art or video. This is what it means to say that he's a modernist after postmodernism. But we have to ask, is it even possible to be a modernist after modernism? Not according to T.J. Clarke, one of the very best historians of modernist painting. Clarke has famously claimed that modernism is so much a thing of the past now that it has become unintelligible to us, quote, because it had truck with a modernity not yet fully in place, end quote. This indeed distinguishes the historical conditions of art production in the early 21st century and its voracious commodity markets from those of a century earlier. Clark's book, melancholically entitled Farewell to an Idea, argues that, and I quote again, already the modernist past is a ruin. End quote. Not because we would have entered some blissful age of the postmodern, but rather because the future modernity which modernism looked toward with hope and anticipation has finally arrived, though in a negative instantiation. And he concludes, Clark that is, quote, postmodernism mistakes the ruins of those previous, previous representations for the ruin of modernity itself, not seeing that what we are living through is modernity's triumph, end quote. Modernity may indeed have triumphed in unanticipated ways in our fully developed consumer societies run by corporate capital and financial globalization. But if modernism is our antiquity, as Clark claims, and if we recognize it as such, then it should also be possible to continue to work out of the ruins of that edifice as much of modernism itself, as much as modernism itself has done in its own relation to the cultural heritage of earlier times. And this is where for me Quitka enters the scene. For him, painting in the tradition of modernism is resistant. If modernist painting from the Impressionists via Cezanne, the Cubists, Futurists, Surrealists and Abstract Expressionists has become ruinous, then that very status of ruination is brilliantly articulated in Quitka's painting. His cul-de-sac is where Quitka, as painter of space, reveals himself as a painter of time as well. Indeed, all of his work can be seen as a sustained reflection and ambitious exploration of the afterlife of modernism in our globalizing world. Quitka's work clearly is not in the, main, in the artistic mainstream of these days. But as we remember that modernism itself operated in non-synchronous, asymmetrical ways across the globe, 
Perhaps its continuation in Quitka is possible because it is being articulated at the periphery in Argentina, where modernity clearly has not triumphed in the way it has in the northern metropolis. Perhaps the appeal for us of Quitka's work has something to do with the fact that it comes from a considerable distance from that triumphant modernity, from a place that has not had to live through the violent market-driven attacks on classical modernism as we have witnessed them in the United States under the rubric of postmodernism. Quitka is still a young painter, about 50 years old. The question, of course, arises for how long his painterly project, arched as it is between representation and abstraction, can be sustained. In the meantime, there are intense aesthetic and epistemological pleasures to be had from looking at a body of work of such intellectual ambition and sensuous execution. Only time will tell if this retrospective exhibition of a painter still this young will have been a summa or a promise. Thank you very much. <laughs>